Well, welcome to the continuation of our journey through the story, the Bible. As we look at uh, a little bit of the life of David this morning, I want you to think about the, the idea that you have to be crushed before you can be crowned. You have to be crushed before you can be crowned. We're going to see in our story today a little bit about David and Goliath, but we're going to look at some other things that take us on a little bit different of a journey than you might be used to that are going to point us forward to the ultimate king, Jesus himself. Remember that as we look at the idea of, of the story that we're talking about, God's story, your story, coming together, um, the, the day you were born, you were placed on the stage of the world, and you are part of God's story, and your life and his interact in certain ways throughout this. And so as we continue our journey this morning, I want to remember that the Bible is like a mural that tells us a single story. That story is God's story, the story of God who is desiring to bring back and bring redemption to all of creation and that he wants to have um, a new kingdom that does not have all the junk that you have and that you see in your, in your current life, okay? And so we want to look this morning at how Saul transitions to David first. And so last week we looked at the idea from standing tall to sitting small. And we saw that King Saul started off, and he started off okay, but he, he wrecked it. He ruined it. He didn't follow God. He didn't obey God. But I want to look at a passage that we will come back to at the end of our, our message, but I want to look at it both. 1 Samuel 9, 16 to 17. 1 Samuel 9, 16 to 17. And there's a couple of words that are key to what we want to look at this morning. It says, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. This is God talking to Samuel. I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now there's three words that were in bold print on that um, slide. The anointed, save, and restrain. And these are, are three aspects that take place in Saul's life, but not only Saul's life as, as we're going to see today. In 1 Samuel 10.1 we see that he was anointed. Saul was anointed king. And we looked at this last week. We saw then that he was to <coughs> lead the people into battle. We saw in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, that he saves them from the Ammonites. And in chapter 14, verses 1 to 31, his son Jonathan saves them from the Philistines. But Saul never fully kicked out the enemy. He never fully destroyed the Philistines, which is why in the video clip you just saw, um, David is, is the one who takes out Goliath. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But throughout Saul's life, the Philistines are still thorn in their flesh, thorn in the side. So David is the one who is going to uh, rout them and move them on out. And the other word, the third word, was restrain. And we do see that in the beginning of Saul's ministry, he did restrain his men. At one point, they were uh, gorging themselves on the meat, and they had not properly uh, taken care of the meat. And so Saul restrained them so that they would um, not eat the blood and the meat. These three words, anointed, save, and restrain, out of 1 Samuel 9, 16, and 17, 
are, are going to play a key part. So I just want you to get that into your head as, as we look at David, and we'll come back to this at the end as I tie some of these pieces uh, together. <clears throat> Saul was a jealous man. He was jealous of David. He was jealous of his own soldiers. He was jealous of his son Saul, uh, Jonathan, I mean. He was jealous of, of many people because uh, Saul had a heart issue. And he didn't obey God. So the kingdom was taken from him because he did not obey God. As we move into the story of David, though, we see with the choosing and the crowning of David, we see that this happens actually in three different phases in David's life. And we're not going to take the time this morning to go through all of them. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the, the first phase of this begins as the prophet Samuel now goes to David's house looking for who the next king is going to be because God has told him. So this is a private anointing. David is privately anointed. David will subsequently be publicly acknowledged, anointed as king by Judah, the southern portion, if you will, and then also by the northern tribe, Israel. So actually he has three different anointings and, and acknowledging and crowning, if you will. So the crowning for Saul occurred in 1 Samuel 10, but for David it occurs in 1 Samuel 16, verse 16, that's the private one. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, with Judah, and 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, with the Israelites, as the whole territory, nation, if you will, acknowledges him now as king. Now, if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that from 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 5, there's a bunch of text in there. There's a lot of history in there. There's actually a lot of running around in there. It's a long time between when David is first anointed in private by Samuel to when he is acknowledged in public to become the king. And he spends a lot of that time running around being chased by Saul who's trying to kill him, learning that he's first got to be crushed before he can be crowned. But that's not all that happens. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is going to learn to save a nation. As David approaches Goliath, a man who is a giant, he's probably related to the, the Anakim and the giants of uh, the Old Testament earlier back in Genesis, etc. But this man who represents all of the Philistines, okay, is putting fear into the Israelites. The Israelites were supposed to be led by God, and they had kind of rejected God as their leader, and they claimed Saul. Why do they want a king to go out before them in battle? And where is Saul? He's hiding in his tent. When the enemy is taunting them day after day, 40 days, twice a day. Now David is less than 20, most likely, because if he was 20 or older, he would have been in the army with his brothers. So he's sent to check up on his brothers and whatnot by his dad. Similar to how Joseph is, by the way. But that's another story for another day. There's a lot of parallels here. So um, David goes, and he goes to the, the battlefield, and he hears this man taunting God. He hears this man mocking God. And he looks around, and he's like, why is nobody doing anything about this? And so David, a young man, 
more than likely less than 20, goes up against this seasoned soldier, Goliath, with a sling, five stones, but more importantly, with God as his strength. He takes on this man, this culture. He takes on what is really a personification of evil in the way of Israel, what God is trying to do with them. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 49 to 51, he slays the Philistine Goliath. In chapter 18, he then goes and takes out 200 Philistines. God is strengthening him. God is leading him. Battle after battle. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that Yahweh gave into his hand the Philistines. He subdued the Philistines in 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1. So David has been anointed three times and David is leading the nation and saving, delivering them. Despite the fact that King Saul is the one still on the throne. It is David the one who is delivering the people from the enemy, the Philistines. And then we move to 2 Samuel. Well, before we get to that, 1 Samuel 22, that is shown as the greater king. Now, he's been anointed privately, but not publicly acknowledged yet. So, <coughs> this way. All right, David as the greater king. And I want to pick up today in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And we're going to read most, if not the whole chapter. And I want us to see some things that maybe... You haven't realized before in this passage. So starting in 1st Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. So David left Gath, and he took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brother and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. In the first portion, we get the understanding that David is on the run. David's on the run from King Saul because Saul's insecurity and his jealousy. He's chasing David because he doesn't want David to be the king. He knows that that's who God has already picked. Okay, and so as he's doing this, David is... Um, gathering together a group of, of men who are pretty much the outcasts. They're discontented. they got problems, all right? They are no longer with Saul's group. And David has these people, and they're drawn up with David. Every deadbeat, etc., it says. Now, when David is gathering this group of people, he's amassing this little army, if you will, and, and running around the, the country, he is still acting as, as a protector of many different people. If you read the whole story in Samuel, you'll see that that happens. But here what I want you to notice is that there are people that are drawn up with David. They're caught up with David. They join up with David. Continue on in the passage. From there, David went to Mizpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab, and they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold, leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left, and he went to the forest of Hera. 
And Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. At that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. His spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give all of you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me as it is the case today. Then Doag the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. And Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. You can stop there for just a moment, okay? So, Saul is so insecure that he now thinks his men are all conspiring against him. Saul thinks that because his son understands that David is chosen by God, that therefore Jonathan, his son, is also conspiring against his dad. This is what happens when you get so paranoid, you think everybody is against you. That's what's going on with Saul, okay? He's basically losing his mind. He's losing control. He doesn't have order. He's not able to command his men anymore. And everything is a conspiracy theory to him. As, as Saul continues down this, this route, he's about to do something that is pretty much unspeakable. Um, I want to recall to you that Saul... One of the reasons that he has the kingdom taken away from him is because he does not fulfill God's orders to wipe out the Amalekites. Okay? He won't wipe out the enemy. He had kept some of them alive and their livestock, etc. But instead, we're going to see that he will wipe out a whole group of God's people. The king sent messengers to summon Ahimelech, the priest, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family who were priests from Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, listen, son of Ahitzim, I'm at your service, my lord, he said. How to have true rest as we prepare for Easter season. And we found that it's usually... Saul asked, why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. Ahimelech replied to the king, who among all of your servants is as faithful as David? He is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and honored in your house. Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any of my father's household, for your servant didn't have any idea about all of this. But the king said, you'll die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards standing by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they sided with David, for they knew he was fleeing. But they didn't tell me. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doag, go and execute the priest. So Doag the Edomite went and executed the priest himself. And on that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priest, with a sword, both men and women, children and infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doag the Edomite was there that day, that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. So, in this passage, there's several things that we see. 
And we do see the pattern of the king. That is, that's our next slide. But th that is something that we see in this with the anointed, the saving, and the restraining. So because you might not be familiar with what comes before and after this chapter, chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, I do need to fill in some of the details for you. While David was on the run, David ended up at the city of Nob, okay? This was a city of priests, okay? The priests were in charge of taking care of uh, the, the tabernacle, the ark, the, the different stuff related to that. And so they, they were um, set apart by God, the word is holy, okay? And because of that, it's, it's kind of like... Um, this is really not the best parallel, but you'll understand a little bit of what I mean. In our culture and context, usually when someone kills a police officer, it is viewed as more serious than if you just kill somebody. Now, in reality, a person is a person, okay? But because a police officer represents authority and law enforcement, uh, there's usually this, this, uh, this heightened element to it. And so if you could take that idea a little bit and connect it with the scriptures of the Old Testament, the priests were like that. The priests represent God himself. The priests are, are mediators between God and the people. The, the priests are the ones that God has put there to lead the people, to teach the people, to be in charge of the temple or the tabernacle, and to uh, bring the sacrifices. So you remove the priests, you're removing your mediator. You're removing your connection with God, in a sense. Now, Saul is so off his rocker See, he's ordering the slaughter of these priests. And this man, this Edomite guy, is willing, he's a mercenary. He's, he's willing to wipe them out. David actually takes responsibility for it. Now, what David, I mentioned, he goes to the city of Nob, where the priests are, and David needed food. And they didn't have any, he said, except the bread that had been consecrated. Now see, every week they would bake bread and they would put it before the Lord's table and then they would pick the old one out. So most likely this is actually a, a Sabbath day and um, that bread is all they had. And so the priest said to David, but your men have to have been holy and consecrated to God if they're going to eat this bread because it's, it's holy bread. And David said, well, they are. Of course they are. We're in the middle of a war. You have to read between the lines a little bit Chance. 
His soldiers are out there. Take him out. Then you can be king like you're supposed to be. Well, then he screams to take away from family in which I'm spending more time driving from function to function. not take out the man that God had put there. Even though God had already basically removed him, he hadn't killed him. So David's view was, well, God will take him out in some way, shape, or form, but I'm not going to be the one that does that. And God did take him out later on, as you saw in the video, in the battle, in which his sons also died. And so David demonstrates restraint in that aspect as well. You can see that in chapter 24, verse 4, and also 26, verse 8. David's demonstration of these same three characteristics, the anointing, the saving, and the restraining in this passage, is something that also points us forward to not only the pattern of the king, but as we're going to see in, in a few minutes, the idea that in the scriptures this is called types and antitype or typology, that these images foreshadow something greater. And they point eventually to Jesus Christ, who is also going to be anointed, saving, and restraining. And this idea through scripture, it's called biblical theology also, is how the story of God intersects with the story of man. And how, as we always keep saying, there's this thread that goes through the story. And this, when you begin to understand, it helps you understand what God is doing in these situations. Now, when, when David went to Nob and the, the priest was there... There's something else that's happening here, okay? God is unwittingly using Saul, unwittingly to Saul, not to God, using Saul to fulfill a prophecy that had made earlier on Eli. Now, if you remember, Eli had actually helped raise Samuel, but Eli's sons were wicked, and there was a curse on them that they would no longer be priests. A new line of priests would take place. Well, when Doeg wiped out the priests, he was unwittingly fulfilling the prophecy had actually stated three things. It had stated that they would be wiped out, but one would be left, and then a new line would be brought up. And actually, it takes three kings to bring that to fruition. Through King Saul, the, king, the priests are wiped out. Through King David, one of the priests is rescued. And then later on, through King Saul, that one man that was left will be exiled. And Zadok will become the new priest, and from then forward, the priest comes in line of Zadok. So, all three of these kings, this prophecy is spoken against Eli because of his rebellious sons. But in 1 Samuel chapter 22, not only do we have David running around and Saul's paranoia, which when we read the text, that's what we, we look at and we see right on the surface of the text. Well, there's this other aspect going on when you look at what's going on in the book of Samuel. So David is willing to go out there in the strength and the power of Goliath, the enemy of Israel. Goliath, who is demonstrating from the Philistines who are, are like the world and the, the seed of the serpent, and David comes as seed of the woman, okay? And from Judah, he's born in Bethlehem. And who else is born in Bethlehem? Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So when you begin to put these pieces together, you will begin to see that the pattern of the king, okay, put the next slide up at 1 Samuel 9, 16 that we've already spoken of. He was going to be anointed. He would save his people. And the next slide. And restrain his people. Okay? 
those three aspects that were going to take place. So when you then look at Jesus, which is where I want to make some parallels today, because David all through Scripture is the greater king. When we look at Judges, you see the constant refrain, the people did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. And so there is this anticipation of where's the king? When is the king coming? So then they get a king, and it's King Saul. Turns out not to be a good king. Then you get King David, but it takes a long time before he gets on the throne. David is the king after God's own heart. David is the king who does great things. But David is also a human king. So David does not do everything right. And David, despite the fact that he is the great king in the Old Testament, and the great king that is remembered in Israel's history, there's always this pushing forward to the idea of where's the greatest Where's the greatest? Well, I mean, two examples, one secular, one from Jesus. The, the, and Jesus the comes, who's going to be the greater and the greatest king, who's going to be a king like David, but better than David, who is going to be a king that is able to fulfill all that God has said without any of the sins that all these human beings have, without any of the trappings of the world. So how do we know that? How does this all come to play? a similar passage in the Gospel of Mark relating to how all these people come to Jesus. It's not the same exact words as what we have in Samuel with, with David where it says that basically all the people that were troubled came. But with Jesus, it's basically all the people that are troubled also. Except they're troubled with health problems and demon problems and whatever else their problems were. And they come to Jesus, all these outcasts. And this begins to form the band that is following Jesus wherever he goes. The crowds of people. The anointing of Jesus happens in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. As Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, who is anointed by God himself, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Jesus comes to cave according to the gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, 21, Jesus says he comes to save the people from their sins. In John 12, 31, he's coming to save them by casting out the ruler of this world. Second Thessalonians talks about the fact that Jesus is going to return to defeat the enemy. Jesus not only is anointed like Saul, like David, not only does he come to save, to seek and save that which is lost, more so than Saul and David, He's also so it's really, it's the one who takes on yes to the Gentiles, Philistines and the Gentiles. David took on the Philistines. To embrace our own limitations. Jesus goes to Philistine so territory. Jesus rejected. Jesus comes back. But Jesus brings the gospel. And you see as you read the gospel that actually there are Gentiles that come into the fold, that believe. Jesus also restrained. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was there whipping out his sword, chopping off the ears of one of the men. And Jesus tells him to put your sword in. He restrains him in Matthew 26, verse 51 to 52. He then prayed for Peter before Peter's going to be sifted by Satan in Luke 23, verse 32. And Jesus says, all who love him will obey him. They will restrain themselves in John 14, 15. So not only is David 
following the pattern of Saul being restrained, but Jesus follows the pattern of being anointed, saving, and restraining. That's not all. David was learning that you've got to be crushed to the ground. That to enjoy the the juice of the grapes, the grapes must first be trampled underfoot. When we read 1 Samuel 22, we're reading a chapter out of the midst of this trampling of David. Of David's life as he is trampled underfoot. As Saul is chasing him from here to there, from this cave to that cave, from this city to that city. Through that process. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 and 2, those people that are drawn up with David, we then find in verse 22 that they're also drawn down as they're slaughtered by the sword for aligning themselves with David, for helping David. We see the parallel in the gospel as people are drawn up with Jesus and then we see the first human martyr, apostle, disciple, martyr in Acts 7. Jesus is Why? Because of his association with Jesus. And so, this is a dangerous thing. To be aligning yourself with David is a dangerous act when the king and all of his men think of it as the government, the FBI, or the law enforcement are out after David. Put yourself with him and put yourself in harm's way. To be drawn up with him is drawn down, as it were, you cannot by the sword. Take a nap right now. You will want to stay Put yourself with Jesus to be drawn up with Jesus. The New Testament shows us that that is to do the same thing. Jesus said, all you who choose to follow after me, you're going to be what? You're going to be Christian. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. The stories that we have from the New Testament, the book of Acts, and following Paul's journeys, etc., are that those who follow after Jesus are persecuted. They're persecuted as they take on giants of the world, as they take on the Gentiles, the Philistines, as they take on in the strength of God with nothing but slings and stones. Those are spears and swords. And yet, we know, as we sang this morning, that the promises of the past will build the church and the promises of the future will also be built. But these aren't the only comparisons with Just comparing 1 Samuel in the Gospel of Mark, there's demonstrations of power over unclean spirits. In 1 Samuel 16, 23, with Jesus and, and Mark, opposition. 1 Samuel 18, 7 to 30, and Mark 2. So as we've already mentioned in chapter 22, verse 3 of 1 Samuel, and Mark 2, 16. There's people who should be protected that are used as traps. 1 Samuel 18, 17, and Mark 3. There's enemies that counsel to kill. 1 Samuel 19.1, Mark 3.6. No regard for family members. 1 Samuel 16.6-11, Mark 3.21-32. And then, as I've mentioned, the trip into the Gentile territory. 1 Samuel 21.10-15, and Mark chapter 5, verse 1.20. You see, Matthew understood this. This is why when Matthew begins his gospel, there's these genealogies that many of us skip over. He divides them into three portions, three groups of 14. But see, the number 14 is related to David, and, and the name of David is the number 14. You use that numbers for letters. And so, really, when you get to the end of the genealogies, you'll see in just a couple verses 
that the number, the word 14, the number 14, and the name David are mentioned five or six times, all packed into a couple of verses. And what Matthew is shouting out is, David, 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 David. It's not just talking about the David of Daniel. He's saying that Jesus is the new David. Jesus is the greater David. In fact, Matthew does this all through his gospel. Jesus is the new and the greater Moses. Jesus is the new and the greater David. Jesus is everything come to fruition. And so when we look at the story of David, we see that he's the successor to Saul. And we know that the next king is, is going to be Solomon. But why, why do we have this information? Is it just a historical record? You know, you could read the history books about other kings, Britain, Europe, Asia, etc. We were at Barnes & Noble yesterday. And, you know, there's I love books. And there's all these awesome books. And so I actually didn't buy a single one. Um, but these books, you know, and they have the kingdoms of the world, the empires of the world, and they list the history of them and the kings and what happened. Is, is that the reason we have the Bible? It's not. It's theological history. And it's a history that's pointing to something bigger and better. It's a history that's pointing to Jesus, who had to be crushed before he was crowned. Just like David had to be crushed before he was crowned. Because great humiliation comes before great exaltation. Jesus, too, understood this. Jesus, too, restrained himself. He's not the only one who could have killed the enemy in the cave. Jesus, as he said from the, the cross, could have brought 10,000 in and wiped out the enemy. The soldiers that came into the garden that night, they were no match for Jesus. In fact, he spoke and they fell down on the ground. He did Peter's sword. Cure a leg, he could take a leg. He could have done it all by himself. But he restrained himself. Why? Because in complete obedience and surrender to the agreed upon plan of the Father, chose to drink the cup. The cup of your sin and my sin. As David went out representing Israel against. Goliath, who represented the Philistines, the world, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Jesus came as the true, the fruition, the, the fullness of the seed of the woman, God himself incarnate in the flesh, to take on the serpent, the crushing It may not be no accident that David put a stone in the giant's head. The heel would be bruised of the seed of the woman, but the head would be crushed of the seed of the serpent. After Goliath fell, David took the door top of his head. Interestingly enough, he took the relief. Jesus was crucified besides Jerusalem in a place of skull and dead head. Accident. The scripts tell us these things. The grapes got to be pressed. Because enemy is all about pressing the olives. And Jesus was. The Last Supper in Luke 22, 14 to 23. Jesus tried to help his disciples understand some of this. He'd already been 
telling them in previous days that you had to go to Jerusalem to be killed and be raised from the dead on the third day. Quite. And in that moment, the betrayer was there in their midst. And all the of them playing the voice of the Because we wrote the, the day where we remember Good Friday. And in our journey through the Bible, the story of King David, we see these parallels. David and Jesus. We see that Jesus being greater recognized immediately. It's not just a battle between a man and a man. This is a spiritual battle. Why are you, Israel, cowering in the corner and not strong in your God? What did God tell Joshua time and time again? What did Jesus tell his disciples time and time again? Fear not, for I am God, David takes out the Goliath. David takes out the serpent's representative. This morning as we contemplate David and everybody knows the David and Goliath story, we need to think a little deeper about how it fits into the bigger story, what God is doing, what Jesus came to particularly in light of the fact that in this season, celebrate bringing you this program the Passover and the death and resurrection of Bruce and James and Megan that Passover who is the crown jewel was just celebrated by Jews all across the world today in this idea that God effectively develop godly families who kill world one day. I'm Michelle Hill inviting you so to join us again next time for another edition of said, Family Life I am this week. Look to Jesus, the King, the Davidic King, the Messiah, the King who stays, the one who is anointed, who stays in the strength. Who restrains himself from you and I, do you know that?
feeling that the right learning environment there leaves a lifelong impact. Continue thinking about that thought. As you contemplate, meditate, and Next week as we celebrate the resurrection. The day with the experience is naturally seated on the spiritual um, If you're not sure what the word typology means, that's what I have to do here. An experience that is matched and exceeded. So you look at what happened in David's life and you see that similar things happen in Jesus' life, but to a greater God, we, we may be in messes ourselves. I know that many, if not most of us in this room are in a state of a turmoil to some degree, God. about followers of you. Our sins have been forgiven and we know we have a shadow of a doubt that we're part of God's family. And if there's someone that doesn't know that, Lord, I pray they would call out to you. If we cry to you, Lord, you answer. We cry to you and ask you to forgive our sins, Lord. Be our Lord, be our Savior. We recognize that you are the King, Lord. We don't look to the presidents and, and priests Powers on earth. Look to the king. The king created all. The king has crowned us all. Peter opens the 